The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. At Zed, we're all about moving with the times. And now it's time to be part of the climate change solution and move on from fossil fuels. As a company providing fuel to people all over the country, we also know we have a real opportunity to lead that change. We're committed to keeping Aotearoa moving by providing the right energy for everyone. We believe that innovation in fuel and how it's used can make a huge difference to our planet. Find out more at zed.co.nz. Let's go. Tēnā koutou welcome to Gone By Lunchtime. It's Wednesday, March 29, 2023. It's six months and four days until advanced voting opens in the New Zealand 2023 election. On the podcast today, we have Annabelle Lee Mather here in the studio. Kia ora. We have Ben Thomas Kia ora. piping in from New Zealand's cool little capital, Wellington. Uh, where he's probably busy doing some, who knows what lobbying and PR work he's doing, sending out press releases. Other, we'll find out later. Talk about that on production and on auto tune. Samuel Robinson, Kiara on the slate today. Stuart Nash, who was sacked for no reason other than being a cis white man. <laughs> Marima Davidson, once again harangued for using the c word cis. Uh, we will complete entire bow on the culture war on this podcast today, as well as a word on nationals' new education policy and perhaps interrogate thoroughly the role of lobbyists in our democracy. Ben may indeed resign live during the podcast. You'll have to stay tuned to find out. Stuart Nash. Last time we did this pod, Stuart Nash was the police minister. It happened sort of, I think, while we were recording, which was unfortunate. Things are better time for us now. He'd lost that police portfolio uh, after he had a double brain explosion. The first brain explosion was years before having called up his mate, Andrew Cuddles Costa, and uh, remonstrated about a uh, court sentencing, mm. saying, you got to appeal this, mate. you got to appeal this. The second brain explosion was mate, deciding mate. to volunteer that <laughs> on on Newstalk ZB. Were you doing an impression of the Newstalk conversation there? Yeah, was or was saying, it the Costa conversation? That was the Costa conversation. That was Nash to But the Costa. Hoskin conversation was also a bit mate, wasn't it? Yeah. It was all mate, mate. Mate, mate, mate. Just, you know, mate. And he... Announced to the world, <laughs> did Stuart Nash, that he'd done this. Uh, Mike Hosking didn't notice because he was just too mate. Uh, but David Seymour noticed, put out a press release, and uh, then it became a thing. And he lost his um, police portfolio. Uh, and then Chris Hipkins. So Chris Hipkins quite, acted quite quickly on that. And then there were a few other ones that came out after that, including one where Nash had again on uh, Mate Radio had announced that he was uh, unhappy with the sentencing 
particular sentencing and the Attorney General, no, the Solicitor General, sorry. Was that gun? Was it the... No, it was, it was, it was a police investigation. Police investigation, and he was sort of giving some okay. some thoughts about what he hoped the kind of sentence that would be sought and would be given by the courts. And, and the Solicitor General yeah. considered uh, taking... Big, to charging him over that didn't, but but thought about it, uh, and that was uh, anyway. What what Stuart Nash was demoted to twentieth rank in the cabinet, which means not very much to you know except saddos like us. Very, very <laughs> significant. Very significant. It means that if if you if you go down from being what the eleventh mm. ranked minister mm. to the twentieth. That means that the people who were previously 12th to 20th ranked ministers, instead of them having to come to your beehive office mm. when you have a meeting, they you you would now have to go to their office. You have to, you have to entreat to them and abase yourself and walk about sort of four to five metres across the, the central elevator well. Um, you know, so it's... It's quite a significant thing. <laughs> so not a significant thing, but he was given a final warning. Um, and then last night, uh, via stuff.co.nz, another another skeleton leapt out of the, the bulging Stuart Nash closet. Uh, and this time it turned out that he had emailed in 2020 during COVID times uh, pretty much chapter and verse about cabinet Discussions on rent relief for commercial rent relief. Uh, he'd 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 emailed to a couple of donors. It turned out <laughs> both the how the discussion went down in cabinet and his own uh, frustration and anger at the outcome of the cabinet discussion, which was a, a double a double breach of quite kind of cornerstone cornerstone principles in cabinet. One being confidentiality, the other being collective responsibility that is so so while it might seem on the surface like oh he's just chatting about what went down in a meeting it's, they are they are kind of pretty critical to the way that cabinet operates one of the donors by the way was Troy Bowker the name you may recognize from becoming LinkedIn famous one of the other New Zealand LinkedIn radicals when he remember he said to Siri and Taylor that he was sucking up to the left loving Maori agenda do you remember that and then he had to leave the hurricanes board yeah, Troy Bowker has donated to uh, National Party, I think, certainly to ACT and to Winston Peters. So uh, that's he's another character in the great Stuart Nash pantomime. Hipkins was quite fast last night. He went onto the tiles, said he would sack Nash. Uh, Chris Luxon was even angrier, saying that he should leave Parliament. So we've had before the Chris-focused Chris, and now he had – hang on a minute, I've written this down – now he had – Cross Chris will make Stu jump. That's good. Yeah. That is good. Our 40 something listeners will love that. Did he Ben <laughs> <laughs> Did he Ben go far <laughs> enough? Chris Luxon says he's got to got to Nash has got to be gone from parliament. Um should uh, is, is is Stuart Nash going to Hang on for the rest of the term. As we speak, he hasn't made any announcement about his future that I've mm. seen. Hipkins, sort of Hipkins, the subtext of what Hipkins said last night was that he had urged Nashi to uh, announce that he would not be seeking re-election in Napier. Yeah, I mean, he had to be sacked. The if if it was 
two, merely two breaches of the cabinet manual and two more breaches of the cabinet manual to go along with the sort of last couple of final warnings that he had for breaching the cabinet manual. Um, you would sort of say it's it's fine for him to remain as an MP, uh, but you know, not not as a minister. Um, the complication of his his correspondence being donors does add you know another filter to it. Um, the 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 idea that you would breach cabinet confidentiality, um, first of all, pretty pretty extreme. Um, the you know, I worked in a minister's office for six years, um, you know, as, as one of the sort of, you know, close circle of advisors. Um, and what, you know, the, the you know, what was discussed in cabinet just wasn't talked about. Um, you know, we had no idea what our minister was saying in cabinet or what, you know, other people would be say, were saying to him. Um, and so, yeah, you know, immediate firing fence. But in terms of yeah, in terms of remaining an MP, I mean, first of all, there's the political reality, which is if you've been a minister for five years, almost six years in Nash's case, and you get sacked, and you, especially if you get told there is no way back in, into the ministry, uh, as Hipkins said, then you, you, what's the point in remaining in Parliament? You know, uh, Stuart Nash could probably secure a public sector job that would be or a private sector job, rather. Well, I was going to say, be, is he actually yeah. in your offices yet? I mean, how many minutes does it take to walk <laughs> from the beehive to <laughs> the lobbyists? Not long. You know, in terms of, it, it's awkward because in terms of a by-election, you would think that the Napier electorate, which takes in Napier, Hastings, Wairoa, the last thing they really need right now is a by-election. Um, there's quite a lot of work to be got on yep. with down there. Um, the tent, a tantalising prospect was raised by Richard Harmon in the Politic newsletter this morning. Troy Balker, as you noted, is a New Zealand first donor, very tied up in, the, in, in that kind of web of people who donate to New Zealand first. Stuart Nash was very close to a number of New Zealand first MPs, like Shane Jones. Uh, and... You know, he certainly is. He's 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 a guy who aligns himself with regional New Zealand. He's very much to the right of Labour uh, in, in sort of economic terms. To the extent that there was and speculation around the Cunliffe years that he might defect to national. That's right. And now at least some, you know, errant, specu you know, errant speculation that if his career with Labour is over, maybe there is a career with New Zealand First who are seeking to get back into Parliament and who desperately need an electorate seat to win. Uh, Nash is popular down in Napier. You know, he is, you know, that cliche of a hard-working electorate MP. Um, and and he held that, that seat, a regional seat, mm. back before the 2020 red wave when Labour just sort of was picking off provincial seats almost at will. Um, you know, he's held that Napier seat for a long time. And Well, he, 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 was, he, he was a list MP, wasn't he? And then he went uh, off the list in 2017. He, he won it once when yeah. Chris Tremaine resigned, yeah. yeah. So uh, I, I think that, you know, he's... You know, it, it creates a lot of uncertainty for Hipkins. <laughs> you know, it was it was inevitable that yeah. he had to go. The other, um, the other the other thing, just on the on the New Zealand First potential, is the kind of uh, irony in that, of course, is that that whole 
potential. Uh, that hypothesis is made more difficult owing to a rule introduced at the insistence of Winston Peters being the waka jumping one, which means that, you know, in the old days he could have jumped and become a New Zealand first MP uh, in Parliament and then would have got all the advantages of, of questions as a New Zealand first MP and all that. Now, if he were to go to the Speaker and say, I'm now New Zealand first, then the waka jumping rule would apply automatically. Um so mm-hmm. what he would need to do is leave Labour, say, he could still say, I'm going to be New Zealand first at the next election, which would then yeah. leave the board in Labour's court to invoke the waka jumping, to expel them from their caucus and then invoke waka jumping legislation. Um, but then whether or not that would create a by-election would be not And it would be interesting if this web of relationships was what led to him joining New Zealand first, because there's got to be a question about... Who provided stuff with this email? Yes, we don't know the answer to that. But <laughs> you know, you can, it's, you can, yes, it's 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 hard not to. We don't know. Of course, <laughs> wonder about uh, the motivations of of, of various um, individuals. What do you reckon, Annabelle Stuart Nash, New Zealand First? Future the, of New the Zealand Daddy first. Mac. The Daddy Mac. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Going with the Daddy Mac. Um, I think it's a really interesting premise, eh? and I, I actually wouldn't be surprised if he did throw his hat in the ring for New Zealand first next time. I think, um, you know, I've heard the word egregious used a lot um, over the last sort of 12 hours, and I think it's, you know, absolutely appropriate, like... The, the 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 mic conversations on radio right. you can put that down to misspeaking or poor judgment but but this email is not only an unethical it's actually an act of treachery towards your colleagues to be speaking you know snitchy to be snitching to them to donors and yeah. outside people about what's going on in caucus like I I don't know if there's has there ever been anything like this in the history of our parliament. and But to be honest, it doesn't surprise me. He's always struck me as a guy who kind of has a recklessly devil-may-care attitude. And, and But I think ultimately the poor judgment doesn't just end with him. I think it was poor judgment for Hipkins in the first place not to stand him down when that first issue came up without having an investigation into whether or not um, there were other instances where he had, you know, demonstrated a failure to uphold the ethics of of what's required in the Cabinet manual. But, but also, you know, this kind of, it also speaks to the investigations that we've seen Guy on doing over the last week or two around lobbyists and just how important it is that, voters, New Zealanders can have confidence in our MPs and the machinery of government. And I think, um, you know, I've heard people saying that New Zealand's too small, we don't need um, legislation around our lobbyists. But actually, I think it's because we're a small country, because, you know, like when we see with Nash, all the interconnectedness with New Zealand First and forestry and donors, that's That's actually why we do, Mm. you know, because we do need to manage these things carefully so that people don't lose faith and confidence in the state, especially at a time like this where we have seen, you know, so much polarisation and some outlandish 
stuff being promoted by the alt-right, but it, it's important that, you know, people follow the rules and that we have clear and transparent. And Christopher Luxon pointed out on the radio this morning that, you know, we consistently get these high ratings from, from Transparency International, but whether or not that's kind of on a bed of sand or not is another question. Ben, this is obviously one that is... No, um, I, I think that's a really good point. Uh, yeah. but, but, I mean, in a way, what Nash was doing was cutting out the middleman, wasn't he? He was like, sort of, it was a danger to your sector that he wasn't filtering and laundering the information through lobbyists. He just sent it directly to the... To the to the dudes. He's cutting your lunch. <laughs> tell us, tell us, Ben. Tell us, Ben. Answer all of that all together and defend your industry. And tell us whether or not we shouldn't introduce, by the way, some rules at a minimum on stand down periods, on cool down periods, so we don't have the revolving door. We don't have the prospect. I was joking before, but the prospect of Stuart Nash walking down the street two minutes into a firm such of yours, yours, and suddenly earning twice as much money, uh, armed with all the information that he's gained as being a member of Cabinet. Yeah, look, I, I mean, you know, fairly obviously, you know, anything that I say about lobbying would have to be taken with a grain of salt um, because I have a very personal interest in it. Um, I work as a lobbyist. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure that anything in Guy and Stories um, that I've seen disclosed anything except... Uh, lobbyists sort of making the case for their clients, um, providing information, um, providing arguments for particular policy positions. I, I don't see anything out of out of the re- realms of the acceptable there at all. Okay, just quickly, um, sorry, I'll, I'll let you finish okay. that, but just quickly, do would you not accept that at the very least it is a, a, a nonsense, a canard, to suggest, as the Prime Minister has, that lobbyists are just doing things that any ordinary citizen can do in New Zealand because we, our politicians are so accessible and it's really easy, which is things that have been said over the years by people in the lobbying yeah. and PR industry that they're just... I mean, it's just not true. Like, there's a reason well, that what people what pay I, what, that what, money. Yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, the, what, what I've always said uh, in response to that is that... Um, you know, anyone can approach a minister's office or an MP's office, um, and they will they will get a hearing. Somebody will look at their letter, their read their email. Um, one thing, you know, in my own they're experience, they're not sending text messages in, and signal messages saying "mate" in, and "comrade," though, are they? In 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 my in my own experience, you know, working in a ministerial office. You know, people would come with these sort of issues and complaints, and you know, you you literally don't have time to sort of try and figure out what the issue is. You know, because people a lot of the time, you know, can't make it really easily digestible or clear. And that's the kind of thing that you know often lobbyists help with. The other thing is that, yeah, if if you are known to sort of staff, you know, even if you've just sort of got a name as opposed to a personal relationship. Um, it, it does, you know, it helps, it helps get your foot in the door and it helps you, you know, they will at least listen for five minutes, you know. They know that you're not going to waste their time with sort of crazy stuff. Um, you know, I mean, that's 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 sort of it. You know, you're right, not not everybody has, you know, phone numbers of cabinet ministers, etc. but, um, you know, whether that means any sort of improper influence. So, you know, I think this idea that... Um, you know, politicians will sort of, you know, kind of change the law as a favour to a mate is, you know, certainly maybe I'm just far less popular than the other lobbyists, but <laughs> certainly not something in my experience. 
Uh, you know, but, you know, I mean, look, my position is essentially the same as Chris Farfoy's outlined in his opinion piece today, um, which is that I am but a humble Tokoloan who was born in a, grew up in a state house. Uh, People looked down on me when I worked as a cleaner in high school and now the same people look down their noses at me when I'm a lobbyist. Yeah, that was a really weak argument, I thought, comparing, you know, saying that the average New Zealander has the same level of influence as, as a lobbyist does. Ben's right, this is about relationships. It's about personal relationships. It's about access. And um, and that's fine, but there needs to be transparency and some, some management of those relationships so that people know... Um, when these different issues come up, like, you know, the the um, container return thing getting scrapped, that they can feel confident that it's not because of undue influence um, on our parliamentarians. I mean, there are a couple of kind of reasonably straightforward things that I would have thought could have been done, you know, and some of it's in Holly Walker's bill that ended up on the scrap heap those years ago, but a register... Mm. of lobbyists and a compulsory stand-down period, which exists in in in, in democracies around the world to varying degrees. Mm. It doesn't seem like... It's doesn't not seem an like, outrageous idea. <laughs> it doesn't seem like a, an incredibly difficult thing for someone going from one well-paid job to another well-paid job to be required to take a holiday for a while. You, can we get your agreement on both of those on the record, Ben? Um, yeah, look, I, I've nothing. You know, any sort of regulation that people want to bring in is is sort of fine. You know, I, 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 I you know, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of pointless even saying it. But you know, look, I, I have, I've always acted ethically in whatever job I've had. Um, you know, one of the other issues that gets brought up is you know media commentary and declaring conflicts of interest, and I always do that sort of painfully, sort of assiduously. Um, so you know, I quite I, like I that from time to time on this podcast and other ones, you're made to you're you're, you're made to acknowledge that you work for the ACT Party in 2017, <laughs> which is not so much a declaration of an interest as a declaration of you know uh, questionable merit as a pundit. <laughs> Look, it's just it's, it's, good, it's good to keep humble, but you know, I. I you know, I, I don't think there is anything wrong with any of the sort of measures that have been sort of suggested. Um, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think many lobbyists, so-called lobbyists. You got to. I want to feel the enthusiasm, Ben. You're not saying this, this with this great not, enthusiasm. Sell it to me. We want to see you out we there. We want to see you passionately. We want to see you out there with a one-litre Kerry tomato juice <laughs> <laughs> up at the no, ramparts. One hundred percent. Look. Here's, you know, if I, if I was Bill English being asked in a in a debate, what would you march down the street for? I would say, a, I would say a ten year limitation period on the revolving door to stop the entry of new competitors into the market. 
One important thing to mention, though, in terms of that, in in terms of regulation, is that, you know, a lot of what we call lobbying, you know, this isn't a special thing. You know, in America, I think lobbyists are often a conduit for donor funds, which just, as far as I know, isn't the case in New Zealand. And, you know, so it, it, it... there's no sort of special class of people who are lobbyists, right? There are um, most of the communications firms that are in Wellington do the same kind of lobbying or government relations mm. work uh, that, say, Capital, you know, where I work, uh, do, you know, does. Um, and so, and, you know, and of course, the examples have been brought up about NGOs and, and industry, you know, in-house lobbyists. So as long, as long as you're sort of catching everybody who's doing it and it's a, a level sort of playing field, I think that's and fair. That, and um, that matrix of work that you do then when you have a client do, do, are donors ever involved in that conversation? Are you ever involved in greasing wheels between clients, donors, politicians? Yeah, so clients will sometimes ask about, you know, how to give donations. Um, you know, I would refer them to the party secretary and to the Electoral Commission uh, website. Um, I'm not an electoral law expert, um, and I certainly mm. don't sort of go out soliciting donations for parties. It's not really part of core work, um, but, you know, it is something that sometimes people are curious about. So, um, you know, you provide them with the information that they need. But, you know, certainly I'm, I wouldn't be a middleman for donations. Let's, let's last thing on Nash before we uh, move on. On. The the as Annabelle pointed out, the kind of pattern that we've seen over the years, and that this one has emerged. Do you think there is a case for basically going through his his outbox <laughs> over the course of the years? I mean, I, I'm tempted to OAA every ministerial office and ask for a copy of every email containing confidential cabinet information sent to a third party, but. Is there a risk, Ben, that there has been like a, a Nash mail substack going out to all his donors after every cabinet meeting? Is that is there some is there, does this warrant further investigation? Yeah, I'm kind of tempted to say yes, um, because I, I think this is the, you know this is the issue that New Zealand has in terms of these sorts of transparency international um, things and the perception that we have so such low corruption is that there have been a couple of successful sort of corruption um, prosecutions brought uh, involving council officials over the last uh, couple of years, uh, last probably five, ten years. And the defence is always, no, I was just doing a favour for a mate. Mm. Um, and, you know, when money is changing hands with mates, as it does with political donations apparently, um, then I think you have to be very careful. Um, and, you know, it may be the sort of thing, you know, that does warrant, you know, a bit of a closer look. Raising capital or taking your business to the world? Investment Fix has the lowdown on everything you need to make it happen. This season, we're exploring the US market, the opportunities it offers, what it takes to grow a business there, and the best way to approach investors. Join some of the superstars of the investment and business world as they share advice from their time in the US so you can make your mahi count in this massive market. The Investment Fix Podcast, brought to you by Invest New Zealand. Tune in today. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. 
Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Let's move on to the Marama Davidson situation, which was dominating headlines until Stuart Nash entered the fray. Uh, she was at the protest against Kelly Jane Keane Minchell, who self-identifies as Posey Parker at um, at Elk Park in Auckland on Saturday. She was hit by a motorcycle mm. in the morning and then she was confronted by the wannabe Alex Jones of the New Zealand conspiracy scene uh, and uh, asked for her take on the matters of the day. And she said, Annabelle, I am a prevention violence minister and I know who causes violence in the world. It is white cis men, which made members of the white cis men community, including me and Ben, mm. pretty, I mean, it was hard to, hard to, you know, it was pretty hard to know to come back to that. We both spent a lot of time inside over the weekend. Can you tell us why that is such an outrageous statement? What's, is, how, the, how wrong is that? Can I, can I say, first of all, how funny it is that, like, a demonstration about women's spaces and trans rights and stuff has turned into mm. a political debate about the victimisation of white cis men. Yeah. Um, ka aroha kia koutou, like, you. deeply oppressed Thank community. Um, it's interesting because, to me, it speaks to... Um, the issue around freedom of speech and how the the right to freedom of speech only applies to certain communities and Māori women um, aren't one of them. Um, Māori women don't get to enjoy the same right to freedom of speech as, as others. And actually, if you kind of look back at our parliament and at Māori women in general, it seems to me that Māori women's speech is over-policed and when they do um, exercise it, organisations that or groups that you would expect to support them don't. And I'm thinking of like Renee Maihi with, you know, um, when she got taken to court by Bob Jones um, and others. Um, Maybe Materia Tude. Materia Tude, Tariana Tudia. Um, in terms of, of her comments, um, I've seen a lot of debate on, on Twitter about it and, I mean, it, clearly it's her honestly held belief and you can see why because if you're to look at some of the most violent acts that have happened in the world, um, World War One, World War II, um, but basically the colonisation of the Commonwealth, um, invasion of Iraq, Ukraine, all of these things, you know, these are things that were conducted by white cis men and the power structures that were created and the, the inequities that were created as a result of these different things also have led to violence among other communities, including, you know, interpersonal relationships and all of that. So I'm really surprised that there's so much outrage about why she said when there's when clearly there's a, a very strong argument that she can make about it. And, um, you know, I do, it, it disappoints me that when a, a Māori woman parliamentarian goes to a demonstration and literally gets hit by a vehicle, that people aren't more concerned about it. And I feel like it's just the normalisation of violence against Indigenous women. Ben, do you want to stand up for your uh, community? 
Um, yeah, look, I mean, <laughs> one reason that the culture wars I don't think will successfully really kind of take off in New Zealand in the same way that they have in America is that the Greens, who I think are the keenest to get them started, can't manage to stay on track um, at the Stephen Molyneux and uh, what was it, Lauren Southern uh, anti-fascist protest, you know, when these two alt-right speakers were there. Uh, Marama Davidson got up and addressed the crowd and managed to make the next week's worth of news about reclaiming the C word. Um, and at the, <laughs> uh, you know, this, the, 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 the Posey, Posey Parker uh, rally and counter rally. Um, yeah, she managed to make it about cis white men. Um, you know, I think actually probably a bit of, she'll probably be getting a bit of gratitude from um, Hipkins and Luxon, I think, um, because they obviously didn't want to get anywhere near, you know, the issues about, um, you know, about the, the thornier issues, I think, um, you know, first of all involving, you know, trans issues, but second of all, um, I think, you know, the issues of the heckler's veto, you know, to what extent it is sort of permissible to shut down speakers by disrupting them, you know, by exercising your own free speech to disrupt them. Um, in general, you'd say, oh, the, the antidote to speech you don't like is more speech, that kind of thing. Um I think there will become a sharper focus on it later in the year uh, at election, you know, during the election campaign, um, because you know we saw the sort of heckler's veto enlisted or tried to be enlisted by you know the anti-vax protesters who would kind of hound Jacinda Ardern at public uh, appearances. So it's you know this is a you know striking the right balance in terms of you know just how much does the sort of the state intervene or the state stand back or whatever in terms of, you know, who, who's allowed to kind of talk in public. Um, that's a trickier issue, which, you know, is probably going to come to a head a bit later. Um, and I think Chris Hipkins and Christopher Luxon were delighted to just be able to talk about Marama Davidson um, alluding to some weaknesses in knowledge about her portfolio. I mean, it's quite weird though, isn't it? per Annabelle's piece, that you can debate whether or not the race element was a constructive thing to add to the argument. The broad point was that the that trans people are not the perpetrators of violence, that it's cis men are the perpetrators of violence on the whole, which is kind of unequivocally true, right? I don't know. Annabelle, do you think the culture wars are coming for our election? Do you think that the election of 2023 is going to get gobbled up in the culture wars that we've seen abroad or is there a is I think they're going to I think the culture wars is is going to be um kind of white noise um during the election I don't think that the majority of New Zealanders will cast their votes along those lines I think people are going to be voting along um, economic lines this year. But I think that the, the media are going to relish it because, you know, it's great clickable content for them. So I think that, yeah, it's going to be present but um, but not necessarily de definitive of, of what the outcome of, of the election is. It's kind of interesting, the culture wars thing, eh? Like, I feel like if Kate 
Shepherd was around now, they'd be calling the suffragette movement culture wars. So, you know, it just seems to be a part of the cycle. And there Every is a generation danger, has them. A danger to have kind of equivalent around these kind of, these are the Geneva Conventions for free street speech and what, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the Free Speech Union, which uh, is a curious group of individuals. Um, um, you know, I agree with lots of the principles espoused thereof, but they're issuing statements about how the 1981 protest, do you see this? I think they then deleted the tweets, but how the 1981 <laughs> protests <laughs> against the Springbok tour were somehow a, 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 a kind of exemplar of peaceful... <laughs> 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 Peaceful rallying yeah. of people, you know, civil, civil discourse. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. I mean, the, the, it's complicated. You know, sometimes things, sometimes people rise up in ways, and and I mean, you know, I, the, I've, clearly there were acts of violence that took place in on Auckland, which mm. I think are, are un, unacceptable. Yeah. You know, and I totally. think it's crazy to try and start defending some of these. You know, there are there are shots and videos we haven't seen the full concert where punches were thrown, just as you know, in the same way when someone gets hit by a motorcycle, that needs to be, you know, if that was deliberate, that needs to be. But also, you know, a, a bloody Mary over the head is it's, it's not. It's not, it's, 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 I'm not. I'm not. Not. Not condoning it, but it's um, it's not the same as uh, as a uh, as being punched in the face. It's not ideal, but it's not quite the same as getting run over by a motorbike. Um, but that that's the thing with with the you know the debate around free speech at the moment is it's almost like, you know, free speech is an ideal that, you know, came about to give voice to oppressed communities. And now it seems like that ideal has actually been hijacked by people with more power and more privilege to help to oppress those communities to whom their ideal really does belong and it's not it's not even a left or right thing it's to my eye it seems like just a kind of misogyny racism transphobia kind of thing that that's happening within our society but it, it's awful to see it being weaponized about against the communities that it was meant for yeah I mean, we still do want to make sure we don't equip the state with tools to crack down on speech they disapprove of because we have to always imagine a state that is not one that is yeah, <laughs> necessarily totally. benevolent, right? Um, let's, yeah, there, there's, let's, right. The, the last thing you want is a census state, and that's why, you know, that's why these aren't, you know, easy issues, right? Um, and You absolutely and, and, yeah. do not want a census state, but... At the the same time, I see like massive hypocrisy around how free speech is applied across communities. I believe in free speech. I just believe that brown people and vulnerable people and oppressed people's right to free speech is just as important, if not even more so, than people with privilege and power. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, it's interesting because there's that you know stop co-governance um, idiot. Um, Julian, Julian Batchelor, hmm. and because there's been a bit of sort of aggro at a couple of his meetings, the Auckland Council has cancelled all of his future meetings in Auckland at council venues, but it's also cancelled counter meetings by sort hmm. of, you know, pro-land back, pro-co-governance, uh, whatever groups. And it, it doesn't seem to me that this this idea of, well, the you know, if, if there is sort of thought of unrest or dissension or, you know, uh, 
you know, in any kind of sort of tension if an event is held, you know, the, the idea is just to cancel everything. It's almost the opposite, sort of like the antidote to speech that you don't like is just to ban all speech, you know, <laughs> or, or not not ban it but not allow for it in council venues. So, for instance, the Posey Parker, pretty, you know, pretty weird and probably pretty expected that you'd be disrupted if you just have an open-air event in Albert Park, right? You know, um, but then, you know, what's the solution? Is it to book a council venue? Well, maybe that's impossible. So, at, you know, it's at some point, you know, I mean, the, the reason that politicians don't want to grapple with this is because, you know, honestly, nothing turns on it for them, right? There's no policy that is invoked here. No one's asking for the government to do anything in particular. <laughs> it's it's just people who, who disapprove of each other's worldviews, um, sort of asking Chris Hipkins to agree with them or disagree with them, right? Um, yeah, and it's, you know, so this sort of thing is going to have to be sort of unpicked at a kind of policy level of local government and, you know, it's going to be tricky. Yeah, it's an interesting one, eh? Like, do regional, do does local government have an obligation to provide venues for people to exercise their, their free speech if it's known that it's, like, particularly controversial and it's going to create um, a flashpoint where, you know, you're going to need a whole lot of cops and there's the the risk of violence and all of that stuff. It's a hard one. I don't know. It is, which brings us back again to the decision that Michael Wood took or didn't take to intervene in the visa for um, Kelly Parker, Posey, Bloody Mary. Let's quickly, (laughs) before we go, because we've got to go, talk about the education policy that was released by the National Party because we are into policy. We love a policy. Um... Annabelle, was Erica Stanford, who's, you know, one of the most kind of confident and calm and I think would think it's fair to say accomplished of the mm. portfolio uh, spokesperson, spokespeople on the, on the national benches, laid out with Chris Hipkins deep in the, deep in the heart of Chippyville in, in the hut last week, an education policy for primary and intermediate, which included things like an hour each day of maths, writing and reading, I think it was, and this kind of tried to square the circle, an interesting bit of mathematics, to try and say we're going to have really, really, really regular assessments, but it's not going to be tests quite. It's mm. not going to be national standards. And it was, Is how it do you think? attainment, I think? There, there was, there was, like there was sort, of, sort of putting a finger in the wind. I mean, yeah. it was, it's, it's an interesting one to try and because, but it's very much designed to speak to parents, isn't it, mm. that, that policy? And in that regard, I think it's quite a smart policy, you know, as a, a, a as a policy to campaign on, it's quite smart. You know, yeah. it's like nice snackable bullet points and hour reading and hour writing, um, attain it, uh, attainable skills tests for certain age groups. Um, so, uh, you know, I and I think too that, Obviously, Erica and Luxon are genuinely passionate about education, and you know there's been a lot of criticism of National that they're only criticising government policy and not coming up with their own. So, you know, mm. in that regard, it's good to see what it is that they're that they're um, planning to launch onto the country should they become government. I think the problem with it, though, is when you start to peel it back, it doesn't really talk about how it's going to resolve the underlying issues um, 
within the education system at the moment, which is stuff like not being able to um, retain our teachers um, because the poor, the pay is so appalling that they go into other industries, development, the lack of teacher aids, the lack of extra resource that have been put into schools, especially post um post the lockdowns when kids have been off school for ages and some don't vibe with online learning and all of that stuff. So great headlines, but more questions than answers. And, you know, I, I agree too that um, it, it does look like it's harking back to national standards and I don't think there's particularly strong appetite for a return to national standards um, amongst teachers and principals. Ben, a quick word from you. Uh, yeah, Eric Stanford, definitely one of the best performers in national, probably one of the best performers actually across parliament, tends to, you know, the sort of um, the, the soothsayer of New Zealand government immigration policy, whenever she says it, it you know, that turns out to be what, <laughs> whenever she calls for a policy in about three months, that Michael Wood announces it. Um, and yeah, really has been hasn't been as visible in education uh, because she's been sort of you know hard at work talking to the sector um, and come out with a pretty serious policy. And you know the the one you know at its core, I think the real issue is that it focuses on you know the basics, which is reading, writing, maths, um, because you know we still see so many school leavers leaving without like the ba literally the basic literacy. To, to do a job, to work in a factory, to read health and safety instructions on a machine, you know, and this is actually one of the things that, one of the things that sort of infuriates government, uh, governments and has done for a couple of decades now is they go out to industry and they say, what do you want? Do you want research and development tax credits? You know, do we need uh, more training and innovation and politics? And generally, industry will say, we need a workforce that can read. 10% of our workforce do not have the literacy skills necessary to just give them instructions to do work. I mean, that and basics that basics language is language that a previous education minister called Chris Hipkins used for some of his programs too. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. The, kind of, and, and the and bigger question goes to the child poverty numbers and all that sort of thing, whether well, or not well, we can... There's all, yeah, there's also an issue, there is also an issue about you know, this, the skills versus knowledge kind of teaching. But, you know, I think the most important skill for learning throughout your life is being able to read. And um, able to podcast. It, it, you know, yeah, yeah that, that's right. <laughs> you know? um, and the, the, the other thing... The will be spent. <laughs> and they, uh, you know, I, th I think one of the other things that um, I've, I've seen teachers have received more, much more positively um, is doing away with the annual teacher registration fee. So teachers currently have yep. to pay to upkeep their own professional registration as a teacher, which is insane, right? Like a, a lawyer at a big firm or at a, any firm doesn't pay, you know, personally out of their own pocket for their practicing certificate. Mm. Absolutely no lawyer at a government department pays for it out of pocket. Um, and the fact that the... <laughs> The Teachers Council <laughs> requires teachers every year to stump up, I think it's about a grand, to just <laughs> for the privilege of proving that they can teach. And the, and the proof is that they are teaching. Uh, We've got to go because I know, Ben, you've got to complete the induction for your new intern, Stuart. Uh, and we will other things to do. <laughs> so uh, thanks very much. We'll be back soon. Thanks to Sam, Annabelle, Ben, members especially. Love you. Bye. Bye.
Kia ora e te iwi, te aihe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spin-Off. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spin-Off member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.